Welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Elena Lapin. Today, we'll meet best-selling novelist Sally Vickers. I'll also be talking to a literary agent, a critic, and we'll take you behind the scenes at the Sunday Times EFG Short Story Awards in London, and we'll listen to a special reading from a 1950s rediscovered gem. Stay with us. Welcome to Book Post with critic Lucy Scholes. Um, Lucy will tell us about the new books that have arrived in her personal post as a critic um, and books she's excited about reading. Have you actually read them all? I have read most of these, actually. I think there's a couple I haven't, but I can um, I can still give you a bit of a lowdown about can why I'm excited. Can I just ask, how do you read all these books so quickly? Um, this I'm... is love reading, so we need to know. <laughs> How does this happen? I uh, I am quite a fast reader, mm-hmm. um, which I think it would be quite hard to do my job if I wasn't. Um, but also it is my day job to read, so I can spend quite a lot of my hours reading things. Um, but, you know, when you get a good book post, if there's something that's coming out, not for a while, but it's kind of sat there and I really want to read it straight away, sometimes it's hard to squeeze that in amongst the stuff that I have to read Um you know, for the the coming up, the reviews that are coming up before then. So it's all about balancing, I think. And do you actually get out of bed to read or do you stay in bed reading? No, I do, I do. I think if I stay in bed, I fall asleep. (laughs) However good the book is. (laughs) Okay, so these are the books that you are currently, that you've read and that you're very excited about and some of them you may review um, or are hoping to review, some not, but your first impressions. Okay, so the things I'm looking forward to coming up next month in May, uh, there's a few in particular. First of all, um, Motherhood, the new novel by Sheila Hetty, who some um, uh, listeners might remember her first novel, How Should a Person Be?, um, which is falls into the category of what we would call autofiction. So based very much on her own life, but also definitely fictionalised. Um, and Motherhood is a sort of, you know, it's a meditation on motherhood, whether one as a, as a kind of a, a young woman, um, well, Sheila Hetty is in her 30s, and it's all about whether she wants to take the plunge and become a mother or whether she would rather lead a sort of creative life without, um, with her writing instead. And I found it really fascinating because I don't think you get enough books that approach the subject of not becoming a mother. There's a host of books coming out at the moment or recently out um, about becoming a mother and how one might, uh, you know, reconcile the creative life with um, motherhood. And so to have one that actually talks about making the decision not to become a mother, I thought was really interesting. And is the main character the one who's thinking about motherhood in this novel, yeah. a writer? Yes. Okay, yes. so there there is that um, issue of writing and yeah, yeah. giving birth. Yes, um, okay. exactly. Um, then we have Kudos by Rachel Cusk, which mm. is the final uh, volume of her new uh, trilogy. And again, it's another example of autofiction. So the first two have already been published um, last couple of years. She started with Outline and then Transit. Um, and these are sort of fascinating. They're a real departure from Cusk's um, style beforehand. They are ostensibly out about a, uh, the narrator is a woman called Faye, who is a writer who lives in London with her two children. She's recently divorced, um, which are all very similar to Cusk's own life. And um, Faye goes through life in these books having encounters with the people she meets. And so what you do is you don't learn a lot about Faye herself apart from through the way that she has these encounters with other people. And, and so, how does it connect with the previous two parts of the trilogy? Well, in the first part, she is, uh, the main character, Faye, has gone on a, um, uh, to teach a writing course in Athens. And so the whole thing is set while she's in Athens over a course of a few days, meeting people while she's there, learning about their lives and sort of recounting those. The second volume, Transit, she comes back to London. She's renovating a new flat um, that she's just moved into. And again, the encounters she has with people in her day-to-day life, from a hairdresser to a friend she might meet for a a cup of coffee or something. And in Kudos, she is on a, it's sort of split between the two. She's on a writing retreat slash sort of, um, I think it's like a literary festival at some point. And so there's some interesting take, or not takedowns, let's say, but there's some interesting portraits of other writers that we might recognise as well in there. So it's really, I I, I really like it. And then another May title I'm very excited about is a, a debut novel by an American woman called Jade Sharma. This is called Problems. Um, and it is about a young 20-something um, uh, heroine who heroine in both 
<laughs> in all the terms. So she is a she's a grad student trying to complete um, her thesis, which isn't going very well. She's also in a marriage, which is having some problems. She's having an affair, which is not going particularly well. Um, and uh, her biggest problem of all is her heroin addiction. Um, and I just thought this was a really great, really sort of fresh, vibrant voice. She is the heroine of this novel is decidedly unlikable in that kind of wonderful way that men have been writing unlikable characters for years and getting away with it and women don't have such a luxury um but Sharma does it kind of wonderfully and it's also a really it's a sort of very it's a mixture it's very funny in parts it's also quite tragic um it sort of hits all the things I would want out of a out of an interesting kind of um, novel and she's certainly someone I'd want to see what she's writing next and be very keen to follow her career and this and, will be published by Tramp yeah sorry this is coming out by um, from Tramp Press um and also it's a really interesting portrait of addiction which I think is um you know something mm. that has been covered before and um, obviously, but it's always good to see it and sort of from a fresh point of view. Anything She's also, else on your desk? On your on my desk at the moment. Table? Oh, I think the other title from May is a very slim volume called On Michael Jackson mm. by an American critic called Margot Jefferson. Um, Margot Jefferson's last book was a memoir called Negroland, and it was about growing up in very privileged um, African-American community in uh, the latter half of the 20th century, um, which I would recommend to anyone. It's sort of fascinating insight into um, her life and her work as a critic throughout the years. She's um, won many prizes in America. And this book on Michael Jackson, she wrote a few years ago. It's only just being published here in the UK now for the first time. Granter is bringing that out, who also published her previous book. And it's a sort of meditation um, and sort of valuation of Michael Jackson, his kind of stardom, the kind of controversies surrounding him. This is one I haven't read yet, I have to admit, but it is there ready to go. Any so we moment. can expect something completely new in her insight. I think Michael so. Jackson, yes, I not think so. What we already know. Yeah. And not the kind of usual sort of celebrity culture uh, stuff. Exactly. But, uh, a, a more interesting. I think it will be a really insight. thoughtful. Yeah, mm. exactly. In like a very, um, very insightful and really thinking about him. Yeah, not in the kind of. It's not going to be a sort of tabloidy take on it. It's going to be something quite clever. She is a. She's a really interesting thinker. So um, that's why I would. That's why it's there on my list. Let's say. Uh, this is a wonderful list. Thank you so much, Lucy. You're welcome. Uh, I think what characterizes all these books, uh, without having read a word of them, but just <laughs> what you've told us is in, indeed fearlessness yep. and a desire to take on something new, original, and to do it in a unique way. So I'm very much looking forward to reading all of these. And Brilliant. Please tell us more next time. Excellent. I shall come up with another... Another list And for... keep reading in, oh. in and out of bed, wherever you do. <laughs> All the time. Don't worry. I have, a, I have a large teetering pile right ready to go. So I'll be on it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Sally Vickers, author of a brand new novel, The Librarian, mm -hmm. which comes with an interesting quote at the very beginning from Saul Bellow. I don't know where he wrote that. Do you remember where that quote actually came from? I don't know, because it's in my notebook, and my notebook's full of remarks that people made, so that's from some time ago. Well, this quote says, people can lose their lives in libraries. They ought to be warned, said Saul Bellow. And you chose this, obviously, for an important reason, mm. as a quote for your novel about a librarian. Would you like to tell us why? Why are libraries so dangerous? Well, this one is particularly dangerous for her, um, as the story suggests, because she unleashes, it's a children's library, and she's a children's librarian. It's only her second real job. She's had a rather um, boring and conventional post at Swindon, which is, um, I'm afraid I chose because I have a, a probably very unfair prejudice against it. <laughs> And she's come to East Mole, which is a fictitious um, market town in Wiltshire. Doesn't exist except in my imagination, but it's a sort of rather closed community in the 1950s. And she sets out to invest this rather antiquated, dusty old library with the zeal of her recent librarianship. She's, she's trained in one of the new library schools that was set up after the war. And through her exposure to 
the children in East Mole and their exposure to her books, some rather dangerous things happen which threaten her job and affect the lives of all three of the significant children who she meets. <laughs> now, I, 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 I didn't start off with this idea. It's, as with all my books, it evolved. But Saul Bell is absolutely right because lives are changed by the books people read. New vistas open up. Uh, rebellions start. In this particular case, part of the danger arises when some adult books from what used to be called the restricted access part of the library no longer exists, but it existed in the 1950s, where books of a sexual or revolutionary nature are stored and people have to ask permission in order to be able to read them. And through an accident, one of those books becomes available to these children. So this book is set in the late 1950s. Yeah. Um, I understand that the character, the main character in the book, the, 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 the 24-year-old librarian, Miss Sylvia Blackwell, mm -hmm. is based on a real person in your life. Um, there was a Miss Blackwell, a librarian in your life in the 1950s when you were a child. Um, I'd love to hear all about her. But first, if I could ask you, this book is set in the 50s and the main character is an adult. But in the 50s, you were a child. So you were like these children she encounters in, in East Mall. That was your age. What was it like for you as a novelist to write about an adult in that time? Well, I was... <sighs> I... Uh, can I just say something about Miss Blackwell? Although I mm. took the name of a librarian who was very important to me. I don't know what her Christian name was, but she was called Miss Blackwell. So I gave my heroine her name. She isn't actually very like the librarian mm. I knew as a child, except in so far as the librarian I knew as a child was a very, very good librarian and introduced me to books I would never have come across otherwise. I suppose, I mean, I'm, I'm going to ask you, answer your question in a different way, which is that I remember vividly what it was like to be a child in the 1950s, post-war. Um, I remember vividly the experience of new books coming out and how exciting it was. And children in that era only got hold of books really through the libraries. Um, my parents, as it happened, were pretty poor at the time. My father had lost his job. He was a communist and he lost his job because of his allegiance to the Communist Party. But I think we'd have gone to a library anyway. Um, there wasn't any question of him buying me books or my parents buying me books. So that was really the source of um, my understanding of the children. It's None of them are me, of but, course. you know, I have a sense of what it mm. was like. Um, now, imagining an adult in that period wasn't too difficult because, after all, I am a novelist and I've imagined people in the 7th century BC, after mm. all, uh, as I did in Miss Garnet's Angel. Um, but I was also a very perceptive child. My mother was disabled. She lost her legs during a bombing in the war, and that made me hypervigilant to her moods and her needs. And I think that's what led to my career first as psychoanalyst and now as a mm. novelist. So I was taking in people. A lot of the time. One has a sense in the book that um, although the period is the late 50s on the cusp of the 60s coming up, you, you sense that in the children, a sense of new freedom sort of coming alive, misunderstood, very much misunderstood or not yet understood by their parents. But in the parent generation, you sense the war, the presence of mm. the war, the survival of the war. Was that what you felt as a child in the 50s, the closeness of the war? Well, I did particularly because my father spent most of the war in prisoner of war camp. While he was in prisoner of war camp, my mother was bombed, thought she was going to die in a fire and was dragged out at the last minute, but the fire burned off her legs. So my father came back to a young wife who was crippled. It didn't help that at the time she was with a lover who was as it happened, a very great friend of my father's. So father, prisoner of war, crippled wife, unfaithful. The war was very deeply stamped into my early childhood. 
I was very conscious of it. I remember the ending of, of rationing, which I have um, mm. Sylvia talk about with one of her f the friends she makes in the book, Ned. I remember vividly um, having my first banana. Mm. I remember the sense, the mixture of a sense of poverty, but respectable poverty and hope. There was a great air of hope around. Um, there was a lot of new building going on. People, my parents were middle class, but they didn't own their own house. We lived in rented accommodation. So I remember the bomb sites. We actually, I actually grew up in Stoke-on-Trent, but we moved to London when I was about five. And I remember the bomb sites and Rose Bay Willow Herb growing on the bomb sites. And there was a bomb shelter in the block of flats where uh, I spent most of my early childhood. So it, it was with us all the time. Mm. Well, um, you feel it in every line of this book. <laughs> good, and good. Uh, <laughs> Sylvia uh, Blackwell, I think of her as Sylvia, which is what she keeps encouraging the children to call her, but they keep calling her Miss Blackwell, which um, is quite funny. Occasionally. Well, we all did, you see. Yes. We called everybody Miss and Mrs. Mm. There was none of this mm. Christian name thing. Yes, she's she's the younger generation. She mm. makes friends, she befriends the parents of the children who are older than her. But she, as you rightly say, she's beginning to sense the arrival of the 60s coming up. So she, she wants camaraderie with the children. She still, in some senses, thinks of herself as a child. Yeah. I mean, she actually reads the children's books for preference. Somebody asks her, did you not want to, the man who becomes her lover, in fact, asks her, did you not want to um, work with adult books? And she's a bit defensive about this, but it's because she prefers the children's literature, as actually, so do I. <laughs> That's very interesting. Well, she, it, it, it's a quite um, sensitive point between them, between her and her lover, Dr. Bell, that he doesn't actually read the book the children's book that she gives him to read. She very much wants him to read. And he doesn't quite understand why. Now, the importance of children's books is a key element of your novel, uh, of, of, of uh, huge, huge importance. And you sense it as you read. There are books that you mentioned. There's a list of children's books at the end of it, but I kept making notes to myself. I actually, as I was reading, I was having this multimedia experience. I was immediately ordering the books. <laughs> <laughs> it made me very excited to yes. read. So, for Good. example, here we have um, Tom's uh, Midnight Garden by Philippa Pierce, uh, which I've just started, and I'm already in love with the whole concept, which is very, I wouldn't call it science fiction-y, but um, a different reality and this freedom of imagination that you sense in that. How would you describe the importance the actual importance, the relevance and the influence of children's books on um, a child's imagination and on their lives. Oh, absolutely central. Tom's Midnight Garden, in my view, is the greatest children's book of all time. Uh, I bought it with a tenor sixpenny book token that I was given by my grandmother in 1958. So I have a first edition. And I read it to my two sons and I have read it to my eldest grandchild. It's a book that's gone down the generations. I have never forgotten the experience, the visceral experience in my stomach when I understood what was happening in the book, which is that a young boy goes back in time through the dream world of an old woman whose house he's living in and meets her as a young girl. And as she dreams from different periods of her childhood. He meets her in different periods of her childhood. But of course, he himself is quite unaware of who it is who's responsible for taking him back in time. And that unquestionably has affected my whole writing life. And also, I think the whole way I think about the world and how I was with my own children and how I am now with my grandchildren. Because I think children are born with what I would almost call a religious sensibility of a sense of another dimension. Most children, not all, my brother was an exception, believe in fairies, 
they instinctively believe in fairies. They believe in magic because the world is so strange and odd and unpredictable and irrational to them. And I think that sense of another dimension is something most people lose as they grow. And I think to their detriment and loss. I've never lost it. I mean, one of the things I always have in my books is a sense of another dimension. Miss Garnet's angel has an archangel. Um, Mr. Golightly is about God. Um, what you've just described about uh, Tom's Midnight Garden, the experience of going back in time through someone else's dream and connected, connecting with that person mm. um, through that um, other dimension that becomes completely normal and possible, that is, in fact, I think, the essence of fiction. Yes, it's absolutely the essence of fiction. Would you like to read a little bit from your book? Post-war publishing was underway, and any number of new children's books were coming out onto the market. She had already ordered her own childhood favourites, Beatrix Potter, Mary Plain, Moomin Troll, The Just So Stories, Puck of Pook's Hill, Huckleberry Finn, The Princess and Curdie, At the Back of the North Wind, Emil and the Detectives, The Wind on the Moon, all E. Nesbitt. And, in addition, Ferdinand, the blue, brown, olive and lilac fairy books, Swallows and Amazons, all the borrowers and Mary Poppins, The Magic Pudding, The Incredible Adventures of Professor Brainstorm, Trust Chunky, The Minnow on the Say, The Katie Books and The Collected Narnia. This last choice was vindicated when she looked across to see Lizzie sitting cross-legged, engrossed in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Are you enjoying that? Sylvia asked. Lizzie lowered the book. Her blue eyes behind her round spectacles were large with wonder. It's smashing. You've met the White Witch and the fawn, Mr Tumnus, but the White Witch has got him. Is he going to be all right? Sylvia hesitated. She herself always enjoyed a book more if she knew how it would end. Do you want me to tell you? Or would you rather find out for yourself? Oh, please, miss, I want to know. He's all right in the end. It's that sort of book. Reassured, Lizzie took up the book again, unwilling to suffer further distractions. She had tidied all the books and filled all the borrower's envelopes when the door was pushed open and a man came in with a child. Thank you so much, Sally Vickers reading from her new novel, The Librarian, published by Penguin Viking. Um, and may I ask you, as our community is, is the love reading community, what are you reading right now? I've just reread the whole of Muriel's Spark. Fantastic. Um, and I'm just about to start on William Trevor's um, reading Turgenev because I'm talking at an event in his honour next week. You know what I think? I think your librarian, your Miss Blackwell, would be very proud. <laughs> Thank you very much. We went to the 2018 Sunday Times EFG Short Story Awards at Stationers Hall in London and had a lot of fun behind the scenes at the party and the dinner, talking to and celebrating with shortlisted authors and some of the judges. My name's Andrew Holgate. I'm the literary editor at the Sunday Times and I'm a judge of this year's Sunday Times EFG Short Story Award. What is it about the short story that you personally love? Oh, the crispness, um, the, uh, the depth. Um, the, you, actually, someone, some, one of the uh, shortlists said that um, that the short story always it has to it will only works if the ending is right you know and uh, which I thought was very good and uh, the best short stories have uh, that very uh, particular quality um, but it's the depth really I think it's really the depth um, the atmosphere is so celebratory and it feels like a baby booker to me 
Would you agree with that? That's what we hope to get to. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say that. And uh, do you personally feel that the uh, selection of five women and six Americans is in any way significant this year? I was concerned. I mean, we looked up at the end and said, oh, we've got six Americans. Um, You know, we read blind until the the end of the long list stage. Um, And so we had no conception of that. Um, I... The, the fact that there are five women and six men, I, uh, I mean, I could be proud of that. Uh, I, I, I'm personally very gratified by that. Uh, the fact that there are six Americans, I think it's, um, it tells us a lot about the sheer quantity of stories coming out of America. And, um, you know, there are 250 um, colleges which are all um, really working very hard to make their uh, writers uh, experts at short story writing. So, uh, I mean, we, over half of the um, short stories were written by uh, British nationals, but um, ju- that's just how, how it rolled this year. And do you, as literary editor, wish that we had more outlets in this country for publishing short stories? I do. Although it's interesting that, that Audible are now... Um, you know, they're dipping their toe into doing uh, original um, uh, material uh, and people are writing directly for Audible short in short form. And so I think that gives quite a lot of hope. Um, but uh, so I think that may be the way it goes in the future. I'm Tessa Hadley and I'm one of the judges for this year's Sunday Times Short Story Prize. How important are short stories to you personally as a writer? Because most uh, of your books yeah. are novels. Um, it doesn't, it, funnily enough, it, does it feel like that balance? I don't feel like I'm a novelist first. In fact, I, in chronological sense, I was a short story writer first. First, I wrote novels, but I, they failed. And I first knew I had done something which worked in a short story. That was, I, I thought, I can do this size. And to make an awful confession, I would say my first novel if you look at it closely, turns out to be a series of short stories about the same people done in chronological order. But I, I thought, if, why, can't, why don't I try to do that? Just take that satisfying smaller shape, which has its own tension holding it together, and then do another one about the same people and then another one. And, well, that worked. <laughs> Not only for me, that's a sort of the linked short stories, I guess, is a, is a kind of a nice acknowledged form that we have now. So I love doing both, and I, I love the relation. I love having both on hand at once: novel writing and short story writing. Because once you're halfway or three quarters of the way through a novel, it, it feels sometimes as if you're carrying its world on your back. You you have such a responsibility to what's already there, to fulfilling it, getting it right. No no move is quite free by that point in a novel. It's wonderfully free when you start. Um, Whereas short stories are terribly irresponsible. You really are just making it up as you go along. And you you can throw down all kinds of things and you don't have to follow them through. So there's a lovely... if, If one is both things, a novelist and short story writer, there's a very nice relationship between the two in a working life. It's interesting that there were a lot of dystopias, and while I guess that's partly a fashion in writing, it's probably also a response to something going on in the world, panic about where we are. I don't think any of those dystopias actually found their way into our shortlist. I've always found that people writing about real things find more strangeness and more absurdity and if you like more dystopia than people making things up and my I was lucky my fellow judges tended to agree with me I think it's less overwhelming than judging for a novel prize for very obvious reasons in that short stories are short one has a lot of them I took them away with me over the Christmas holidays which was absolutely perfect because I would spend you know some hours cooking and steaming things and looking after the family and then I had this wonderful excuse to retreat and go through the stories sometimes exclaiming in dismay and sometimes exclaiming in delight Uh, so it on the whole yes short stories work well with competitions I must say because of the scale of the thing both at that stage when you're reading and although we did read a lot it, it didn't feel oppressive and then later when you're talking about them among the judges it because of the scale of it, you can really get the whole thing and grasp it. There wasn't an absolute consensus. I would say each judge probably had one story they loved, 
which maybe got onto the long list but didn't get through to the short list. Um, and th there were very good arguments about stories, arguments about unease and about tone. And, but we were a good... We, we agreed, essentially, actually, there were one or two stories from the beginning that we all knew were going to be in our shortlist, and quite quickly the rest of it assembled itself as we spoke. And we all liked all the stories on the shortlist. The five being women feels fine, doesn't it? Uh, all of them being American is a little bit disheartening for us Brits. Oh, I would love to have had some different writers on there, some Commonwealth writers and some British writers, but damn it, the Americans are good at the things. They just are. They have a great tradition of the short story, rather different to ours. And uh, there are lovely things that happen in the States, like there are so many more outlets where you can get short stories published and that feeds back into the writing practice in obvious ways. I wish we had more outlets here in Britain where writers could get short stories published. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful? Courtney Zoffness, the winner of this year's Sunday Times EFG Short Story Award. Um, congratulations, Thank first you so of all. Much. Um, we are very, very excited for you and very happy to speak to you about this. So your story is called Peanuts Aren't Nuts. How does that become the title of your story? Your story is really about a young girl who has an attachment to her tutor, Yes. Was tutoring her at home in various subjects. Just biology. Just biology. And does she fall in love with him? Or? I don't know if it's love, mm. um, but it's definitely a crush that borders on infatuation. Uh, I like the metaphorical potential of peanuts aren't nuts, uh, suggesting that things aren't always what they seem. And that was certainly the case with Mr. Peebles, uh, my protagonist's tutor. Your story is very powerful in a very natural sort of way. You feel like you are with that girl in that room, going through every lesson, going through, and yet it's such a short story. How did that come to you, that idea? Uh, well, the idea is rooted in my personal life. Uh, I had a biology tutor when I was in high school who was arrested in a federal sting operation for child pornography. Uh, I never had a crush on him, and he was not attractive. I, I just will put that out there. For the power of dramatic potential for fiction, I raised the stakes and created that situation. Uh, but I was fascinated, even at the time, uh, with the fact that I had parents who were quite overprotective and t took various measures to ensure their children were safe. Uh, and yet, you know, weekly I was in a closed door room off my parents' kitchen with a sexual predator. They took measures to protect their children in the world at large and invited into their home someone who was certifiably dangerous. And did he have that sort of admiration for your mind as no, Mr. Peebles did for your character? He didn't. He didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I didn't have a mind to admire. <laughs> yeah, no, he didn't. Well, in the story... Um, your character is uh, definitely attracted to him in, in a teenage sort of way, but in yes. a very powerful way. It takes yes. her over. She begins to understand things that you only really understand through having a sexual relationship or a sense uh, of one about to happen. Um, is, it, is this topic a sensitive one, a very hot one in, in the United States right now? It certainly is, uh, but I don't think it's a new one. I think it's just gaining new attention. Mm -hmm. um, I have been told that the story is timely, but I don't. I think of it as timeless in that these concerns of 
uh, imbalanced power dynamics and predatorial humans on younger subjects or vulnerable subjects, uh, you know, withstands uh, or is outside of time. Courtney, tell us a little bit about your writing career. Um, where are you at in your writing career, in your writing life? Yeah, so uh, I have been writing slowly but surely for um, about 15 years. Uh, though I will say there were various interruptions, courtesy of life, etc. Uh, but yes, I've been writing steadily all the while. Uh, I am in the process of finishing a memoir and essays believe it or not, nonfiction, uh, and also in the process, before I even knew the story was a contender of converting Peanuts Aren't Nuts into a novel. It's a very interesting concept that this short story will become a novel. Can you ex talk a little bit about the boundaries between the two or, or the opposite of how one merges with the other? I feel like I'll be able to speak more authoritatively to the process after I've finished. Yeah. Uh, no, but for you, what, did, what does it feel like? What, what was it about the story that yeah, made you so want I to stay with un the character? unfinished with Pam mm. as a character, and I imagined a lot of life for her outside of the confines of this story. And I recognized that um, the story I wanted to tell for Peanuts Art Nusts had clear borders, at least as I imagined them, but I started to write a variety of scenes around it, um, a constellation, and then quickly saw a much larger story developing. I am so deeply flattered to be in this company. Uh, I mean, some of these writers I was reading well before their stories were nominated, and I had the pleasure of reading my competition, so I just, it, it was a tremendous honor even to be considered among them. And you seemed very surprised to be the winner. Hugely surprised, yes. Why? Uh, well, I think historically <laughs> the prize has um, been awarded to writers with uh, wide and deep reputations, a la Juno Diaz and Anthony Doerr, writers who no doubt deserved to win. So as a writer who's finishing her first books, uh, I did not expect that this would be bestowed. Well, your Colleen. story is so fantastic. We thank are you. rooting for you now and in your future career. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming to London and winning this prize. Thank, thank you for your time. For today's reading, I've chosen a favourite of mine, a novella called My Face for the World to See by Alfred Hayes. It was originally published in 1958 and now again by Penguin Modern Classics and is set in 1950s Hollywood, which, surprisingly, turns out to be not that different from today's Hollywood. Paul Bailey has said, Hayes has done for bruised men what Jean Rees does for bruised women and they both write heartbreakingly beautiful sentences. Enjoy. It was a party that had lasted too long. I'm tired of the voices a little too animated, and the liquor a little too available, and thinking it would be nice to be alone, thinking I'd escape for a brief interval those smiles which pinned you against the piano, or those questions which trapped you wriggling in a chair. I went out to look at the ocean. There it was, exactly as advertised, a dark and heavy swell, and far out the lights of some delayed ship moving slowly south. I stared at the water, across the frontier of a kind, while behind me from the brightly lit room with its bamboo bar and its bamboo furniture, the voices, detailing a triumph or recounting a joke, of those people who are not entirely strangers and not exactly friends, continued. It seemed silly to stay, tired as I was, and the party dying. 
it seemed silly to go, with nothing home but an empty house. Below me there was the beach, and now a girl came out of one of the bedrooms downstairs, dressed in a pair of shorts and a Basque shirt, with a yachting cap on her head, and carrying in her hand a cocktail glass. She moved carefully and gaily out over the sand, balancing the glass with a store-bought captain's hat on her dark hair, and I could see her in the light coming from the house. Her legs had, in the very tight shorts and in the darkness, a special whiteness. She went down to the edge of the surf and very deliberately there took a long drink from the glass and cocked her head a little to look at the stars. It made quite a picture. The sea, the shorts, the cocktail, and I assume she was perfectly aware of the composition. But then, so was I, lingering out here on the porch, smoking a carefully meditative cigarette. I thought I'd seen her before somewhere, at least I'd seen the white legs, the long hair, the jaunty cap before, posed sometimes against the sail of a sloop at Balboa on a crowded weekend, or sitting up on a stool at the bar about four o'clock in the afternoon at Ocean House. If you were a member and had a cabana, and the odds were she wasn't. She'd been invited there to Ocean House, as she'd been invited aboard that sloop in Balboa, and not usually alone. Usually there were three or four other girls whose legs were equally long and whose hair curled at the shoulders just so. I couldn't see her face, but it didn't matter. I was sure who she was, more or less, and I was sure she was experiencing out there, with the water curled about her ankles, some divine rapport with the sea. Then, holding the glass as though she were holding a chalice of some kind, in a private ceremony, she began to walk into the ocean. Her legs glimmered a little in the darkness. She paused to drink again, deliberately from the glass, and then the undertow did something to the sand she was on and she fell. That delighted me. The little rump was now thoroughly wet, and the yachting cap was off her head. She stood up, confronting the Pacific, not making now quite the fascinating silhouette she had presented to the indifferent sky a few minutes before. She looked now a thoroughly discomfited nymph. I leaned down, my elbows on the railing of the small porch, enjoying her disaster. I was somewhat sick of all of them, their casual denims, the beachcombing sneakers and t-shirts, their ginghams and halters and sandals, their candors and all their sunburned charms. The girl wavered a little now, with the cap gone and the cocktail glass at sea, and then she began to walk deeper into the ocean. She was pushing out into the water now, and she evidently wasn't, as I had thought, wading. A big breaker came in and she went under. She really went under. I shouted something and jumped off the porch. Where Books Come From is a little corner of our podcast where I'll be talking to publishing professionals who will reveal some secrets about what they do and how they do it and their own love of books and publishing. And today we have with us Gaia Banks, who is a literary agent with Shield Land, a very famous agency. I don't know how long it's been around. Since the early 60s, I think. Right. But you've been at this agency for 14 years, yes. and prior to that, you had a different job, I believe. I, yes, I worked in translation rights at John Murray Publishers. Mm -hmm. So why um, or how did you get into publishing? Why did you choose that as a profession? Um, I was very lucky to do some work experience at Penguin when I was at university, and um, one of the things that... Uh, they asked me to do was to organize the filing and um, which is why I never I never sort of look on that as being a lowly task because it's so interesting um, and I was reading the files about a particular book and this was a book that I had in fact used at university and was the 
you know, the book on the subject. And it all began with a letter from an editor to the author saying, you're a very eminent academic. Um, I think that the time is right for a new book on this particular subject. Would you be interested in writing it? And it had never occurred to me that a book would not come fully formed from the mind of the author, that there might be other people involved in the process. And I thought that would be such a wonderful thing to be part of. So, And is this what you do today as an agent? Do you often get involved in how books are actually born? Yes. I mean, that's one of the most interesting sides of it, actually. Someone can come to you with an idea and uh, you you absolutely know what they mean, but you might see that if it were slightly reworked, it would be more commercial or it would be um, better suited to a particular part of the market. Or, um, yes, I mean, the idea of, 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 of developing things so that they can uh, find the largest audience, actually. So, yes. And at your agency, you have some famous backlisted authors, I understand. Yes. For example. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we represent quite a few estates, actually. We represent the estate of Jean Rees, um, uh, Tom Sharp, Catherine Cookson, Barry Unsworth. We have lots of estates and we also have some really eminent authors who have been writing for a very long time and are still writing at the height of their powers, like Rose Tremaine and Melvin Bragg and Susan Hill and... And it's really wonderful to work with them. In the 20 years that you've been in, almost mm, 20 years, yeah, you've it's been pretty much almost, 20 years. Yeah. Um, how has the world of books, the world of publishing changed, would you say? Mm. Are we in a happy place today? I think we are, actually. I think we are because I th- I feel that publishers have um, really come to understand the um, the the power of the ebook. It's not... Um, It's it's not something that is going to um, send shockwaves through the industry any longer in the way that it did. People, it's a known quantity essentially. So there was a moment, um, maybe five or six years ago, when it felt like things were really in 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 some sort of revolution or tumult. It was really, uh, it wasn't scary. It was just very different. And suddenly people started, you know, saying that paper books were no longer going to be um, relevant. And I think for for certain kinds of fiction, ebook is the perfect medium. It's it's easily accessible. It's quick. It's 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 convenient. Um, but I think the other thing that happened in the wake of ebooks was that publishers really um, began to recognise the importance of the printed book and how it differed from the ebook, and how it could really be a thing of beauty in itself. And that's wonderful because that really has engaged readers again with... with, with uh, In a new way. In a new way, yes. Mm. What are you reading right now for fun? Reading right now for fun. I read lots of memoirs, actually, and I'm rereading um, Angelica Houston's memoir. Um, I think it's a story lately told. Um, and I really love reading memoirs because I work on a lot of fiction and I find that... Reading memoirs sort of recalibrates your perception of what's real and what a real voice is and the psychology. And apart from the fact that, you know, it's a wonderful book in itself. As a publishing professional, what are your top three tips for authors to know about, to follow about writing books, publishing books, maybe working with agents, just your top three Mm. best ideas for them? This is something I think about a lot because I know that, um, you know, it can be very daunting approaching authors. And I did actually try to write a novel myself once, so I know how very hard it is and I never finished it. So the people that write to us at the agency have accomplished something I never was able to do. So firstly, you know, they need to be uh, proud of themselves that they've done that. Um Time. Time is really important. Don't rush it. Don't follow trends would be my my number one tip, because if you do, the chances are that by the time you've finished your book or if it gets picked up by the time it's published, that it will already be dated. So write what you want to write rather than what you think will get you published. Um, I think um, time in terms of... um, You know, the amount of time it takes to write a book, to get it right, to really feel like it's the best version of the book that it can be. And I think one of the things that ebooks and self-publishing has perhaps done is given authors the um, the ability to just 
um, perhaps give up too soon, actually, with agents and feel like they just need to get their book into the, you know, the, into the world. Um, sometimes the best thing to do is to just put it away and come back to it in six months and and resubmit it to people because, you know, time is important, but also timing mm -hmm. and that you can't discount serendipity as well. I think that's really important, finding the right person at the right moment and someone who really, finding someone who really understands what you're doing. You could be talking about dating. Yeah, but that's exactly... Time, timing, serendipity, <laughs> finding the right person. Great yeah, top tips from... But it's absolutely right. That is kind of what it's like, you know. You, you feel like um, that you're almost kindred spirits yeah. when it's right. Yes, that's how it should be. But that fits beautifully with the theme of love reading. We love reading. We should love writing if we're writers. Mm. Um, and thank you so much, Gaia, for being here with us for the first, the very first Love Reading podcast. It's been such a pleasure. And Thank now you. we know where books come from. <laughs> Publishers and bookshops can give books a limited shelf life, but mysteriously, the loved ones survive, not for years, but for centuries. Books' oxygen is love. I hope you felt this love in our Love Reading podcast today. Our guests were Sally Vickers, Gaia Banks, Lucy Scholes, Tessa Hadley, Andrew Holgate, and Courtney Zoffness. This podcast was produced by Alex Raymond, with a reading by Tim Dubery, and music composed by Alex Raymond. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also comment on our blog and email us at podcast at lovereading.co.uk. I would love to hear your thoughts. I'm Elena Lapin. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next month.